Hi, and welcome to East Coast Office Hours, the fanbite podcast that's me, Merit Kay, and Danielle Riando every Friday afternoon, just yeah. uh, vibing and recapping the week and talking about our favorite uh, hit workouts and <laughs> Mega Man bosses. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've never played a Mega Man. You've never played Wait, a that's Mega not, Man? Wait, that's not entirely true. I've played like half an hour of Mega Man 2, I want to say. That, uh, whatever is on the NES Classic, that little cute little buddy of a console, I played a f- couple of worlds. Of, maybe not half an hour. Let's call it like an hour. Something like that. I bet that's Mega Man 2 because Mega Man 2 is the one that like everyone really loves. Yeah. It's sort of the one that just ensconced a lot of the tropes of the series. Um, like the first one was good, but the second one was when it really started to take off. Um, yeah. They're fine. Yeah. I like I platformers. Know. You know, yeah. I, I grew up around that time. I just. That, see, that yeah. is curious to me that because you are, I know this about you. Yeah. You enjoy a platformer I or do. two. Yeah. You like a Donkey Kong? Oh, you like a Mario? <laughs> um, now, Mega Man, kind of also in that classic uh, pantheon yeah, of, I think uh, it's, platformers. I think it's because at the time, like talking about like late 80s, early 90s, I was very, very young at that point. I was like... Talking, I think what eighty eight is when the first one came out. Eighty seven, maybe. So I was like three or four, <laughs> right? At that point. Yeah. And I was playing by the very, very early nineties. By like eighty nine and ninety, I was playing uh, Capcom, Capcom's platformers that were like a little bit more for the younger set, even though they were structurally mm. very similar. Like Ducktales, for example, was Ducktales? a favorite game of mine, Great. and I could actually beat Ducktales because it had an easy setting and. Mm. I don't know. Maybe some people at five are great at video games. I was not. <laughs> I I don't think I ever beat Mario until I was like older, like Mario three, for example, which was, of course, the biggest Mario ever. When Those I was games are hard. Yeah. I yeah. mean, Mario World, um, I think I beat when I was pretty young, but I would say that it's the easiest of those yeah. uh, first four Mario games. Uh See, I never played the original Mega Man games either because I we're I'm younger than you and I only ever played an NES when we like borrowed a family friends or mm, something. Okay. Uh and then I did remember playing Mega Man 2 and getting to Air Man and just being like this is impossible. <laughs> uh I hate this. But um the X games I th- some people think they're harder um, I don't know that I ever actually beat them <laughs> as right. a kid, but I definitely beat them using save states later on sure. on an emulator. And um, the X games are like some of the best platformers on the Super Nintendo. So it's surprising to me that you haven't uh, that you haven't played those. Yeah, it's surprising to me too. It's a little weird. I, I think it's, like, one of the biggest gaps. Not, yeah, no, not know? in, like, a you should play this kind of way, but just, like, a you know, they're platformers, and they're sort of the same era as, like, Donkey Kong Country. Yeah. Um, maybe is it that they're less about sort of, like, 
jumping, running and jumping and more about shooting? Is it? That's a huge part of it, I think. Is that part of it? Yeah, I think that is. And also, like, the art just wasn't appealing to me as a young kid at the time. Right. Like, Donkey Kong Country looked like a wild fucking... Oh, yeah. Just, it wasn't even just how pretty the graphics are. That's... That's a thing for me. It was more just how wild and how much there was like a sense of adventure. Like think about yeah. Donkey oh, Kong Country totally. 2 with the pirate ships and the like Bramble World and the sort of like ghost world with haunted God, roller coasters I hate that and Bramble shit. World. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but it was like this sense of adventure and color and everything and Mega Man at least at the time to me had a somewhat more muted palette. It's a little more like just kind of generic sci-fi. Yeah. For sure. I really loved the look of those characters when I was a kid, like sure. Mega Man and Zero. I feel like, because they're kind of like anime characters, sure. sort of. Zero has this like beautiful, long, blonde hair and um, and like a lightsaber and is, there's like, you know, heroic sacrifice and there's like this... It's funny, Mega Man X is when they tried to be like, let's have like a, a mature plot for this one. <laughs> and like it it doesn't really, and when they really get into it in the later games, I think the gameplay suffers for it. Sure. But um, but as a kid, it was like, I think it was the same attraction that like some anime had when I was a kid where like, oh, these are like big stories with these larger than life characters yeah. in conflict with one another. It's not just like a slapstick kind of uh, car- like cartoon, you know, even though now I really um, have a lot of appreciation for like Looney Tunes and that kind of thing. I yeah. think at the time it was so different from what I had seen before. Yeah, I can appreciate that. I'm looking at screenshots of the X uh, Mega Man X series and they look gorgeous. Like, I don't know what my baby brain was on at the, at the time. Well, I feel like, <laughs> no, I mean, the thing is it, they look, they look like video games. Right. And at the time sure. Donkey Kong Country just did it didn't it looks like um like a movie or like a a picture book or something yeah those games still look gorgeous yeah i agree and sound gorgeous as well um although i will say (laughs) yeah when i was a child um i definitely bought the donkey kong country game uh donkey kong land which is the oh game boy game boy version yeah and uh, first of all, the original Game Boy doesn't have a backlight, so there's that. And then <laughs> trying to, like, I will say, I think they did a really good job of porting those games to the Game Boy because they were really sort of, like, pushing it, I think. Yeah. Um, because there were, like, NES ports to Game Boy, and then they were doing SNES ports, and, like, it doesn't look anything like the Super Nintendo game, but, yeah. like, Looking at it now, it's like, okay, that's like a pretty good job. But um Yeah. At the time, I it was unplayable. Like I couldn't tell what was happening <laughs> sure. on screen. I couldn't see anything. And I think I returned it because it was just like, this is inscrutable. But it had such an appealing yellow cartridge too. Yeah. I think any game that had a different colored cartridge as a kid, I was always like, oh, this is special. That got me even as a teen. Like oh, it's it's even good. even on, in the N sixty four era for me, which was my my teen years, yeah, basically completely my teen years. Actually, it was like for me at least like ninety seven to whatever two thousand one. That's like exactly when I was a teenager. So it's like, yeah, 
that that's a yellow dk64 cartridge yeah and the golden zelda cartridges gold zelda oh Oh my god there were a few red cartridges as well oh yeah was there like a bomberman Uh, that was red or am i completely off there might have been i know uh i think there was a spider-man okay spider-man was red um and then there were a bunch of red SNES ones. And Charter has just linked us to a page that, of course, exists, which is a database of all of the different colored oh, N64 yeah. cards, which is uh, amazing, which is great. Oh. Uh, oh I yeah, love that gold and silver cards. was extra. It's slightly extra money. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was always like a way where they could just be like... <gasps> This is special. <laughs> um, and I'm sure it costs them more just because like, okay, yeah, no, actually, let me let me uh, read off of this, which is on micro64.com. Um, yeah, the gold and silver cartridges cost publishers extra. And uh, some of these color options didn't get used for any commercial releases. And if publishers wanted to do a colored run, they were required to order a minimum of 50,000 copies. And if wow. they had chosen gray, then they could not change their mind. With the exception of the gold and silver colors, colored cartridges did not cost any more than gray ones. They also didn't take any longer to manufacture. Wow. Huh. Wow. Yeah, it's very like- weird, like... Um, I don't know the details of how how this stuff works now, but um, I mean, starting with the with the NES, Nintendo and Sega um, really got on board the thing of having everyone having to go through them to get licensed right. and approved to publish games because uh, they were sort of trying to avoid what had happened with the previous boom of consoles, where just anyone could make and release the game for, which was like kind of cool when you think about it. Yeah. Um, but a very different world. And, uh, like I think some people maybe don't realize that is that like before Nintendo and Sega were around, anyone could just make Atari games and release them. Yeah. Like there was no, like, you know, that official Nintendo licensed product thing that was on every game. Yeah. Uh, at once a seal of approval and then just officially licensed. It, there was right. like a whole the, story behind that too, where it was like, oh, yeah. quality assurance. And then it was like, no, it's just, it's just, we approve this. Right. To be yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like, oh, um, as if it had Nintendo had been like, yes, this is great. And then it was just like, no, we were just allowed them to publish it. They had gone through <laughs> us. Yeah. Um, and there's that whole thing that we may have talked about on this podcast before where companies found ways around that like they they found ways to just like re um reconstruct like the chips right. that NES games needed to run but then there was one company that was doing that and selling unlicensed NES cartridges and Nintendo was basically like went to retailers and was like if you sell these games we won't give you product anymore yeah um and so retailers were like, oh, okay, well, we still, we want Mario, so get the fuck out of here, uh, Color Dreams. And then what they did was they started selling Bible games instead. Right. Color uh, Dreams? Is this the? Co- 
uh, like color well color dreams color they rebranded as wisdom tree because wow, okay. christian bookstores weren't selling video games anyway and so they made all these bible games that they could sell through them but then by the time the snas came out it had become a lot harder to uh to get around the lockout stuff so the only game that they made for the snes i think was super noah's arc 3d yeah. which was a Wolfenstein ripoff. And to get that to run, you needed to plug in um, a Super Nintendo cart to get around the lockout chip. <laughs> um, and there are all kinds of weird tricks that people came up with to get this stuff to work because they just didn't want to deal with Nintendo. Wow. Um, I and, truly um, love that in the Super 3D Noah's Ark uh, Wikipedia yeah. page, John Carmack is in fact listed as the programmer. <laughs> oh, is it just because it's a Wolfenstein? Yeah, ripoff? I'm, su- I'm sure. Okay. It's but just that's a very reskin funny. of Wolfenstein. Yeah. Yeah. That's very funny. That game is really bizarre. You're like firing pellets at goats to knock them <laughs> unconscious while they're trying to kill you. <laughs> uh, yeah. I yeah. learned about this. Um, because of, you know, I, I was a longtime Electronic Gaming Monthly reader, uh, mm-hmm. and Sean Baby's column in that magazine talked about right. like, horrible games and weirdly, like, remembered games. And I'm pretty sure that was, like, part of one of them. Like, he mm. discussed this wild-ass game. This is in Bible Adventures, I think. Uh, were, right. Were among the games discussed in, in uh, Sean Baby's column. Um, yeah. What a wild thing. Just what a wild thing. Oh, I, I do also love the idea that you could use a game genie, apparently, also, potentially, to... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, to bypass the, the lockout. Um, actually, yeah, the game genie is weird, too, because there were all kinds of weird conflicts between them and Nintendo and, yeah. and other companies for, like, you know, letting people cheat and, like, kind of low-key hack into things. Yeah. Um, and even on some consoles now... You can use the Game Genie to boot, uh, like, games from other regions. Oh, right. Like the Sega yeah. Saturn, I think, um, if you have, you can have, can have an unmodded Sega Saturn, and you use a Game Genie, and you can run Japanese games on it. Oh wow! Which is cool. God, I, I keep thinking of buying a Sega Saturn, that I'm like, why would I do this? Like, Panzer Dragoon Saga which is like one of the the big games that everyone's like, oh, you got to play this. It's like incredible. Yeah. It, it's only on the Saturn, blah, blah, blah. Guess how much that game goes for on eBay? It's probably like $200. Uh, no, more. <laughs> 350 Way more. $750. Uh, like 1500 Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, it's... um. Uh, it goes for th- one, like a, a thousand to five thousand dollars. Holy fuck! Um, brand new, it's it's like five grand. Um, pre-owned is like a thousand. It was printed in such small quantities, and also the Saturn was like already going downhill. And um, so, I mean, it's sold out, but yeah, it's just yeah, Panzer Dragoon you can get for like. 50 bucks but saga wow. is like 
is unreal. <laughs> it's so like, it's like, okay, well, I'm never, ever going to own that. Like if I want to play that, I'll just emulate it right. legally with the legal copy, a legal backup that I have. Right. But, um, wow. Yeah. Wow. Oh, it's so annoying. Cause it's software. This is not like made from a substance that is rare. That's what, right. That's what's so fucking I mean, frustrating. Yeah. No, the thing is like, I don't think anyone who buys these games is doing it like only real perverts are doing it to play them because <laughs> sure. I think a lot of people will settle for emulation and only sort of hardware purists will want to play them on the original hardware. Yeah. I think most people it's a collecting thing, right? It's yeah. just like, this is an object that was made in a small quantity that is valued partly because of its scarcity. And so that's why it demands such a high price. Um, but like, you know, whether or not the price would go down if it were more widely, like if, if Panzer Dragoon Saga were suddenly available on Steam, mm -hmm. would the price for it go down? Maybe a little, but sure. probably not that much. I don't know the exact economics of how this stuff works, but I have to imagine that it's not totally related to, yeah. to that. I hate that my brain does those gymnastics. Like I... It makes me angry that I think about, like, I don't care. It's an object, blah, blah, blah. And then I think about, yeah, but what if I had, like, a fresh copy? I wouldn't want to sell it because mm. of this. It's, like, a weird thing. It's, like, a weird scarcity thing that I know works on my brain, even though I know it's all kind of fake, you know? Like, <laughs> I know that it's all in my head like it's all uh, a factor of human psychology that okay this i don't actually need this object like it's okay yeah. for me to not have this object yet just the thought of oh i have it and it's fresh and it's in you know the fresh wrapping paper from 1998 or whatever <laughs> <laughs> like does that to me and that makes me I mean, slightly mad collecting is weird it's yeah. it's a weird impulse and um I'm sure there's a lot written on the psychology of it. Sure. Like, I don't think it's pathological inherently, but yeah, right. Uh, I hope not. <laughs> it's yeah. it's like a an interesting impulse, and I think it, there's like a bunch of different reasons why people collect things. And um, yeah. I think there have been times in my life where I've been like, oh, I, the idea of having like a collection of something is really cool, of um, books or games or whatever old hardware. Yeah, and then. And then I go through these periods where I'm like, I have to get rid of everything. Yeah. Like, I hate all of these things that are surrounding me. And I I know that that sounds very like Fight Club, the things you ended up owning you, which I don't believe. Right. <laughs> but I'm also just at some point, like, when I'm surrounded by stuff like that, I always feel like I should be using it or something. Right. Um, otherwise, it's just staring at me, which is kind of one reason why I like digital games, because... Uh, <laughs> they, I don't feel guilty for like not touching them. Um, yeah, it's really bad. It's really bad. I, I feel the exact same way. And like having that collection just looking at me and staring at me. It's also like, I don't know if this is wild, but it's almost like I'm crushed by the weight of it. Like, I, it's yeah. like I feel the weight of these things on my chest. I'm not literally hanging out putting a bunch of books and video games on my chest. Like, let me just be clear. I'm not actually doing that. You're not that. doing weight training by no. <laughs> just lifting copies of Infinite Chest? I mean, you know, uh, I guess that could be like 
the infinite chest workout. Infinite chest. <laughs> Good. Good. I'm glad we got there. Uh, also, Jordan. We got there. Put in the chat, I am Jack's disused Sega Saturn. I like that. Uh, <sighs> yeah, that's my thing is like, I've had old hardware at various points in my life and um, have really enjoyed it for a while. And then, yeah, I'll feel like guilty for not using it, which is probably more about me than the act of collecting. Um, but yeah, but I sympathize. I think a lot of people probably do. Yeah. And that's, I also like, I feel like every year or so I just do a purge of books too. Mm. Um, I love when I go to someone's house and they have like a ton of books and I can just like look through them and stuff. But for me, I, I guess because I've moved so much in my life, Mm -hmm. like across the country multiple times that having too much stuff after a while really starts to weigh on me. And, um, and I'm just like, well, I'm never going to read this book again. And if I need another copy, it's really easy to find. So I'm just going to keep stuff that's like rare or that means something to me. Yeah. Uh, or that like I always want to reread. Yeah. That's so smart. I actually just it, today. I don't know if no, it's I think any better than having a lot of stuff. It's just a different way to live. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just, it's practical. Maybe smart wasn't necessarily the right idea, but practical. That is practical. Especially if you move again. I, I just relentlessly went- practical. <laughs> and I wish I could be more impractical. Yeah. Well, I mean. I, I Practicality just, isn't very romantic. I don't know. I feel like it can be. I don't like maybe it's a patience thing or a like just being done with the whole like on the scale. I think there is a I think there is a spectrum. Yeah. Of um, of practicality where being completely impractical is very romantic. Having a room full of books uh having tons of knickknacks and things like that. I think that is very romantic. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side of things, being completely practical is also somewhat romantic because I think it implies a certain kind of like rugged uh, competence. Mm. um, Okay. Just you're, you're like just practical in terms of being capable and confident and having a very like, austere existence that you're comfortable in and I think I fall right in the middle of that at a place that is uh very unromantic (laughs) (laughs) and just sort of have an existence that is very straightforward and um uh I always feel both of those poles pulling at me yeah but maybe it's okay to just be in the middle I feel like I am the person who hates the idea of throwing things out because it makes me sad mm. and it makes me angry to have to do it. Yeah. But no, that's real. But I aspire to the rugged competence. See, I can I can definitely see you as that because you're going on vacation next week. You are a coffee drinker, correct? Yes. And it's fairly recent in my life. I never drank a cup of coffee like in my life until I was like a young working professional when I was like oh, 26 same. or 27. Oh, oh it wow. was a little bit earlier than okay. I wasn't a professional, but I started when I was working retail uh, sure. as a summer job in college and I had to get up early every morning yeah. and I started just going to Starbucks because I was like, this is kind of what people do. 
at the mall. They <laughs> yeah. go to Starbucks. Um, but what I was going to say was that you're going on vacation and I can really picture you kind of making your coffee over a fire. Yeah. And uh, there is a video going around a few weeks ago of someone making coffee like up on top of a mountain and then by a lake and all this stuff. Oh, but it yeah. was with like a glass apparatus and it was just the most <laughs> impractical, ridiculous Instagram <laughs> bullshit. And it's like, no, listen, uh, uh, Danielle's got a mocha pot and it's mm-hmm. just gonna just make, make some coffee on a fire and then just like cook up a can of beans <laughs> and uh, go for a run yeah. and uh, spear a fish. <laughs> this is and, highly uh, accurate, except I don't know how to fish or hunt or do anything like that because I'm a, a strict vegetarian as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm one of those rugged uh, outdoorsy individuals who also is like, what about a nice salad? Which is you're living a- off the tree meat, <laughs> exactly. the meat of the trees, yeah, and the the foliage of the forest, yeah, exactly, and the greens of the sea, the greens of the sea, the delicious seaweed. Oh my seaweed. god, mm. what is that line? I forget. Have you seen Logan's Run? Oh God, like up. Uh, hundred years ago aka college which for me was a okay. like hundred years ago so there is um a robot character in that film called box played by roscoe lee brown who <laughs> i think is is seen as kind of like an early like black character in sci-fi sort okay. of yeah um and uh, what year was Star Wars? 77 was the first. Okay, so Logan's yeah. Run predates it. Yeah. And uh, Box shows up very briefly. And um, his whole thing is that he talks about uh, sea greens and protein from the sea and fish <sighs> and sea greens, plankton and protein from the sea, uh, protein, plankton, um, <laughs> and just sort of goes on about that. And uh, it's a weird movie. It is, but I remember it being great. We at should least do it for my college. For you, love to see it. I think yeah. when I saw it, I watched it a few months ago, like back in like March for the first time, and I think I really didn't care for it. But then the more I thought about it afterwards, yeah, I was like, oh no, that's actually a very good film, um, that I like very much because it's about in the future everyone lives in a mall, right, and uh, then. <laughs> They die when they turn 30. And yeah. Basil Exposition is the main character. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of really charming things about it that are pretty fucking awesome. I put it in the same category as Barbarella in my head, even ah. though I know it's not exactly the same era or exactly the same thing. It's just like, I don't know, something about the production design of late, late, oh, late 60s early gorgeous. 70s sci-fi that I just I could have that running in the background of my entire life and I'd be like yeah that's what should be happening visually to my eyeballs and my brain at all times basically absolutely absolutely yeah, yeah. It's, it's a movie good. where everyone decides that instead of living in a future sex mall they want to live outside where an old man teaches them about fire and yeah. other nonsense um, yeah it's a strong choice, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Strong choices made by everybody. <laughs> Farrah Fawcett yeah. is there. That's right. God. Yeah. What a film. I need to watch it again. It's seriously been like 14 years or something like that. It feels like it's been 14 years for Since me. March. Yeah. <laughs> Since March also. So. fair. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Speaking of 14 years, this week has also been 14 years long. Um, yeah. At least. I honestly am thinking about like last weekend. I was like, yeah, that was like last year. Uh, it's It's been a long one, but there has been a lot of really cool stuff going up on the site. I, I was wondering if you wanted to talk about something cool that you worked on this week. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's been a long road, it, a long road, <laughs> a long and winding road, long, even. long, long road. <laughs> um, yeah, there's all kinds of good stuff this week on the website that I call fanbite.com because <laughs> that's what it's called. Uh, we had a really cool piece by Jeffrey Rousseau about black sitcoms from the 90s. Yeah. Uh, basically looking back at a bunch of shows that are streaming now. And um, so shows like Living Single, which... <laughs> Do you remember when David Schwimmer said, like, oh, there should be a Black Friends or something? And um, uh, yep. everyone was like, did this? Dude, there is. It yeah. existed. <laughs> and honestly, I remember it being a lot better. I mean, Probably. also Baby Brain, for real. Like, I was also quite young, you know, yeah. when I was watching Friends and Living Single when it was, like, just on. You know, it was, like, network. They're all network TV shows that... uh. Yeah, Jeffrey was mentioning. So I watched a ton of Living Single when I was like eleven. Right, <laughs> it was just like, yeah, that's what life is. And in, in like, I, do they live in Manhattan or Brooklyn? I always forget. But I like, believe it was Brooklyn. Yeah, it's just like that's life in Brooklyn. That's cool. That eleven-year-old dumbass child that I was, I just like thought it was great. Like, yeah, yeah. She's a magazine uh, editor. That's uh huh. <laughs> Glamorous. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now you're a magazine editor, so yeah, you know. right. And I live in Brooklyn. <laughs> like, yeah, just like TV. <laughs> just like TV. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it was a great piece that talks about um, the value of these shows uh, in the current era. And I think just the fact that, like, this is media that, like, was made in a very different context. Yeah. And, um, and was just sort of, like, responding to similar but different kinds of uh maybe similar issues but like that were being expressed differently yeah and um and just really showcasing like a lot of different kinds of lives um i mean you had like the fresh prince which was a classic kind of fish out of water story (laughs) uh with will smith uh going and living with his his uh rich aunt and uncle in Bel Air and um, even that show like dealt with kind of intra uh, community issues too. Um, And I think like what this piece is getting at is that these were shows that were like for black audiences. And if they got picked up by other audiences, which they did, that was sort of like, not necessarily the main intention 
Yes, um, it's like a nice bonus. Kind right. Of, and yeah. I, yeah, and I think there's something to be said for like how doing that, those are often the kinds of shows that I think do get broader audiences um, when they are doing something unapologetically like for yeah. a certain community because it's also like novel for people who aren't a part of that community and it's like different. And even if people don't realize they wanted something different, often they, I think they do. Yeah. Um, God, The Fresh Prince was such a good show. I, I feel like I could watch that entire run now and find it fucking hysterical and great just all over again. It's And like, just same really for good. Living Single, TBH. I didn't watch much of the Keenan and Kel show. Yeah, I neither did I because we didn't get it because I think that was on Nickelodeon. I, I watched and, um, some of it and thought it was funny because I watched a lot of all that when I was a kid mm. and like they were from all that. But I just, maybe I had like, I don't know. Maybe it came out at a time when Nickelodeon was like, oh, I was a teenager and I wasn't watching as much Nickelodeon or right. something like that. Right, grown up, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. 13-year-old so, yeah, I'm pretty sure up. that was one of those series that like I heard about like as a young adult. That was like a, like when I moved to the States and people would talk about their like cultural touchstones. Some of them I would, you know, know because we got them. Sure, like the Simpsons yeah. or whatever. But then there were a lot of shows that were on Nickelodeon and then a lot of, you know, like anime that was on Toonami and stuff that we just like never got. Yeah. And so that's sort of like one of the weird things about being Canadian is like you share a lot of culture with the U.S., but then there's some stuff that just for whatever reason never crossed over. And in its place, you have like this very specific Canadian experience that when you try to talk about people are just like what are you talking about like you know a band or a tv show or something can be huge in canada but not make much of a dent in the u.s and there are exceptions yeah. obviously like degrassi i think had some crossover oh yeah appeal sure. um and then drake obviously blew yeah. up here as well but yeah um but yeah, like I just have in the place of like Keenan and Cal and other sort of shows of that era, uh, like The Sweet Life and all that stuff. I just have like weird Canadian teen sitcoms like <laughs> uh, Student Bodies and uh, that show where Ryan Gosling is on a boat. His school <laughs> is on a boat. Uh, Breaker High. Wow. I mean, I've that, heard of it, but I that didn't was the know first that was thing the I premise. saw him on. Yeah, it's, the school is on a boat, and they go around to different countries and learn things. And Ryan Gosling is like sort of the bad boy who always causes international incidents. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. I mean, that's fun. I feel and, like I would probably respect him more if I watched that instead of all the things I've seen him in. And so. the captain is the principal. <laughs> wow. That's weird good. premise yeah so that's what i got instead of some of these shows but yeah it's a great piece and uh you should yeah. go check it out hell yeah uh i know you also wrote something about what destiny characters smell like and i just wanted to say i really liked that one even though i don't oh, know the destiny thank characters. You. <laughs> yeah that's one of those pieces that i think people see the headline and are like oh this is what a funny joke and um no it's it's serious and it's not like huh they probably smell like diapers or like right. whatever it's yeah. just like uh no i actually tried to think about it using because it doesn't come up here very often but uh i'm pretty into perfume yeah and uh and fragrance and uh i feel maybe, like one of the first times we hung out we went to like a 
indie perfume store. Oh my god, I miss Twisted Lily. I know. Yeah, RIP. It's gone. Um, I haven't maybe been as into it lately since they closed because I haven't had a place to go to right. get samples and stuff. Yeah. But uh, this was kind of a good excuse to to bring out my my big uh, boxes of perfume samples, which yeah. it turns out that one of the best ways to store them is to just go online and order like a bullet uh, a bullet box. Wow. <laughs> they make these plastic boxes for for ammo, I guess. And um, <laughs> perfume samples fit in them almost perfectly. Wow. And they're like little, you know, like a little grid box with little boxes to put your things in. Um, so I just have like a few boxes of those and I just drag them out and was like, what is, uh, what is Eris Morin from Destiny smell like? Oh, <laughs> Black Afghano by, uh, uh, Nasamato. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's um, so, so that good. was, that was fun. Yeah. I really enjoyed that piece. I also love when I click on something and I read a thing and it's both fun and I actually learned something. And actually mm. feel like, oh, that gave my brain a little tickle because I learned uh, a little bit about some of these sort of like personality notions slash scent notions. And that was fun. Mm. I enjoyed that. Thank so. you. Yeah. It's very cool. What about you? What have you been uh, up to? Well, I um, I actually wrote something this week. I just actually posted it right before recording. Um, but I actually wrote about uh, a book this week i wrote a book about mm. a book about mma uh so chris Rini is uh an illustrator and uh, a writer and he wrote a book of essays about really it was kind of 2019 in mma like a lot of the biggest fights and not even just the biggest fights but some of the most interesting moments and interesting yeah. kind of fight cards and it's also full of like at least dozens of like really incredible illustrations. So what he does is he live illustrates a fight and he like will get like the facial expressions and the sense of momentum and the sense of like, he, what he does is is really incredible because a lot of MMA and especially the grappling side, which is like what I do is like genuinely about feeling at least to me yeah um it's really hard to describe certain things like oh the perfect knee bar or the perfect uh rear naked choke or you know like it's hard to kind of convey that in words like it really is something i just have to feel and think about to actually sort of experience it but mm -hmm. an illustration can do that incredibly well if you're like a talented illustrator who also knows kind of the feeling of it so he can convey these incredible moments of like triumph or loss or or injury or you know, pain, frankly, um, in these like really, really awesome uh, illustrations. And he's doing that live, like during a lot of fight cards, like he'll be on Twitter, like just drawing things up. And like some of them are very rough sketches, but he's obviously cleaned up a few of them for this book. Uh, he's done a lot of portraits for this book of fighters. Uh, and then also had like a lot of these sort of like sketches of like, oh, my God, this finishing moment or this incredible moment kind of thing. Uh, right. And also these like great essays about certain moments. Um, content warning uh, for a quick second here about domestic abuse. But he talks about uh, a fight card in early 2019 where uh, a woman who's a survivor of abuse is on the same card as Greg Hardy, who is like, uh, in a, a, you know, a, he did some bad things, some really, really awful mm. shit um, that has to come with like some fucked up parenthetical about like, oh, the charges 
he was convicted, but the charges were dropped on appeal kind of thing. Like, fucking horseshit. Like, the guy sucks, and he's bad. Um, but they were on the same card. Like, the UFC is promoting the same fucking thing, saying, you know, like, oh, good, you know, good for Rachel Ostovich. Like, she's in there, and she's, you know, doing really well, and, like, good for her. She's, like, walked away from the situation kind of thing. And then, like, you had fucking Greg Hardy on it. So he, he does a great job of working through the amount of emotions you feel as like an MMA fan who is a person with a fucking conscience and like who doesn't care for the way a lot of these things are promoted and thinks like a lot of people suck in this world, but also you appreciate the art of it and like the martial art of it and and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, cool ass book. I It's just a brief piece. I just um, really appreciate it. I know MMA does not have the best reputation among a lot of folks and I completely understand why, especially if you ever look at like MMA Twitter for more than four seconds. <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. uh, there are things I think to appreciate there. Uh, and I think he does a wonderful job kind of capturing a lot of that. So yeah, that's my amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very cool. That's a good time. Uh, I guess I'll also briefly mention, I really did love uh, the podcast uh, for you love to see it this week, which was uh, for the crow. <laughs> Uh, which is a, a, a delightful film uh, from 1994, a very like industrial goth like anthem of a film with an incredible soundtrack. Uh, yeah. Jordan and LB joined me on that one. Of course, our great producer, Jordan. And he actually picked the movie. So thank you, Jordan. That was a that was a very good time. That's in the uh, You Love to See It feed. Hmm. And uh, last thing I want to mention, of course, is like a huge deal. It's like a really huge deal and it's yeah. really exciting and really fun. Uh, we finally got to announce something that's been brewing since like last spring, <laughs> basically, uh, which is that Khalif Adams and Spawn on Me are now working with us here at Fanbyte, which is so unbelievably exciting. It's so cool. We did a stream last night uh, where we got to announce everything. Uh, John and I went on uh Khalif's uh, Twitter show to just talk about it and talk about what it means and how excited we are to kind of have him. And it's just like, oh, my face hurt from smiling <laughs> for like mm. an hour straight, just being like, oh, I'm so excited. And, you know, all the cool possibilities um, and just how fucking proud we are that like, you know, that he wanted to work with us. <laughs> like, that's also a huge compliment to us. So uh, that was really cool this week. So that's going to be something ongoing in the whole future. Uh, but it was super, super fun to be able to announce that this week. So, yeah, that's that's what I was excited about this week. Yeah, <laughs> very cool. Yeah. Awesome. That's, uh, yeah, very exciting. Yeah, I think he'll be on some shows soon. Like, I, I'm kind of wondering, maybe we could have some East Coast uh, feelings with him. Yes, we are cool. going to need to talk about uh, horror movies yes. and uh amusement parks yes he has a lot to say about those things and i'm excited to hear them (laughs) uh awesome um so i I guess with that did you want to discuss anything else before closing up for business uh yeah no i think that's that's probably uh that's probably it for this week yeah an eventful week i would have to say well Thank you, everybody, so much for listening, uh, for being here, for, uh, for uh, you know, putting us 
uh, in your ears this week once again. Uh, I guess with that, we are getting ready to close office hours for business. So you can please uh, rate and review our podcast if you'd like. That would make us very happy. It would mean so much to us. And if you would also tell a friend or family member or, or roommate or just kind of whoever you think might enjoy this show, uh, that means so very much to us. And we really do appreciate that. Uh, you can listen to all of our stuff at fanbyte.com slash podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Fanbyte Media, on TikTok at Fanbyte, and of course on Fanbyte.com. And you can watch all of our very good streams on twitch.tv slash Fanbyte. Thank you, as always, to Jordan Mallory for producing the show and fact-checking and giving us extremely good uh, <laughs> like um, pictures of things as we uh, record. That's also extremely helpful, and I think it makes the show even better. Uh, Merritt, where can people find you online? I'm at Merritt K on Twitter. I am at Danielle R.I. And with that, office hours are closed for business. Bye.